Welcome back once again to The Big Chat, where I interview amazing people who offer insights into how brands, businesses and individuals can get an edge in today's digital world. I'm your host, George Hughes, and I'm the founder and creative director of Small Films, a video marketing agency based in London. In this episode, I'm joined by Lisa Target, the UK general manager of Tribe, the self-serve marketplace that connects brands with everyday influencers. The Tribe platform is a really neat way for brands to find influencers to promote their products. Originating from Australia, Lisa was listed in the Drums 50 Under 30 and named one of Diversity Journal's Women Worth Watching in 2018. She's widely acknowledged as a thought leader within marketing and advertising, delivering keynotes at Decoded, Millennial 2020, PR Week, AdTech, and frequently commenting on industry news for Forbes, The Drum, Campaign, and The Telegraph. She also wrote the IAB's 2018 Digital Guide to Innovation, and she also knows an awful lot about influencer marketing. So if you're keen to find out more about this new and trending tool, then keep listening. Lisa, thank you very much for coming down today. It's very exciting to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking all about influencer marketing, all that kind of thing. So you are the UK general manager for Tribe UK. I am. Which is an influencer marketing platform. Yeah. Now, is that something you've always been in? Have you been an influencer, yes. expert guru <laughs> since the get-go? Is that, is that kind of where you come from? or No. I mean, my background has always been in, um, in digital marketing and, and digital advertising. And I think very naturally we saw an emergence of where consumer eyeballs were and attention was and trust was. And if you're any kind of, you know, digital marketer that knows that you're trying to elicit some sort of response from an audience, make them feel something about your brand and, um, you know, potentially sway them to consider your product. You've got to go where the trust is and you've got to go where the eyeballs are. So that, that slowly led me down the path of, of working with creators. Um, and I'm so glad it did because it's such an exciting space. Cause you, you're, you're Australian. I am. From Melbourne. Yes. Is that right? Originally, yeah. yeah. Um, Lovely part of the world. I've never been there myself, but I hear great things. Yeah. I've got friends from there. <laughs> um, but you, you, you came to the UK and one of the first things, you, jobs you did over here, you're working with Franks, which is an Australian men's, men's uh, sort of swimwear yeah. brand, isn't it? So yeah, tell it me was. about that. So I remember I met, um, I was in university and Franks was this sort of side hustle joint venture between um, two Australian guys and a, and a British guy. And, and they were friends of a friend and I just wanted work experience. And I said, well, can I just do your PR on the side while I'm at university and I want to move to London? And if I do it for free for two years, will you give me a job? And they said, yes. And so I did, I just ran around town trying to find, I'm actually trying to find a lot of influencers. I would, would try and find, my brother was a swimmer. So I'd beg all the Australian swim team to wear these board shorts and then make sure that we got someone to film it and seen it to the press and get it in the hottest, you know, list and all these things and just self-taught. And when I ended up moving to London, when I graduated working for Frank's, it became, you know, this real all hands job. So I found myself working for pennies in a warehouse in East London and they didn't have a team, it was just me. And the London owner had a ton of other, you know, joint ventures and things that he was involved in, part-owned a PR agency. So I'd sit in with this PR team and do everything from building the website to um, working on merchandising with our partners to selling them into new partners. So that year we started working with Urban Outfitters and ASOS Selfridges and um, doing collaborations and events. And I just, I loved it all, you know, he gave me full reins to just drive sales to get the brand off the ground which meant I could test and play with everything and and the more and more I immersed myself the more I realized I wanted to get some formal education in advertising um, and work with big brands had meaty budgets and so I found myself at the Telegraph the, the next year and that was my foray into the world of media and publishing. So you say, I found myself in, at the Telegraph. It's not yeah. exactly like, oh yeah, I just found myself at the Telegraph. No. Yeah. You, you see, you, you managed to get 
you know, a role working with Telegraph, that's a fairly big step yes. in itself. Because, I mean, you're going from a, a swimwear brand where the budgets are, you know, probably fairly negligible over in London at that point, And then you're going to work for basically a world-renowned paper. It is true, yeah. I remember um, speaking to a recruiter about, about the role and it, it was a new role that the Telegraph hadn't um, had before. So they had their traditional advertising team that was selling print and digital solutions and they had their classifieds or um, specialist sales teams that would work across um, education and recruitment and auto trading and all those kinds of things. And right in the middle, they had crafted this, this new role, which was essentially like a commercial partnerships role. And the purpose of that was about extracting more value from the website um, outside of pure advertising and display advertising. So this is before programmatic advertising. Um, and so what we would do was try and find a couple of key clients and get key commercial partners for different sections of the site. So one example was the Telegraph's arts and culture section, you know, it's a huge readership with real antiques lovers. And so we went out and we found this amazing um, startup who was like a, it was like an eBay meets Sotheby's. So they were an online auction house provider and they would do live auctions at the same time that there was a real auction at Sotheby's or Christie's. And so we would host sort of an always on widget on that part of the website, but we would also do big guides to antiques buying and, you know, a lot of content marketing. So we had this hybrid sort of advertising and brand building partnership, but backed by performance marketing um, over a 12 month period. So it was a different way of working, but I loved that because it was about kind of going deep on one client's, um, you know, business and working with you know, um, one niche of our readership as well and how we could add value to both them and that brand and deliver a real return. And I think that honestly framed up every approach I've ever taken for working with a brand because it wasn't about selling spots and dots advertising to gain reach. It was about making sure that we were hitting every part of the funnel for every objective that made sense for them at the right period of time over 12 months and that we were extracting the most value for, for them and us and our readers, which... Um, it's quite a lovely place to start learning about advertising. So how long were you at Telegraph for? So I only ended up um, there for a year. So I got to see a lot of those um, long-term partnerships out, which is fantastic and um, really proved the success of that, of that role. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to be sponsored. The Telegraph didn't sponsor 23-year-olds. Um, they might have changed that policy, I'm not sure, but didn't think um, it was worthwhile for a 23-year-old Aussie. And so I, I found myself back in Australia, which was an absolute blessing in disguise because I, I ended up, you know, being able to, to use, you know, having someone like The Telegraph on my CV um, to step into, you know, big boys world, which was the, the world of um, free-to-air television and a very consolidated media market in Australia and um, work for Australia's leading media company, which was fantastic. So that was um, basically Channel 9's, the group that owns Channel 9, right? Yeah. So 9 Entertainment, is it? Yeah. yeah. So how did you find yourself working for them? Just, you know... Another hoodwinking situation, I'm oh, yeah. sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was... They, I guess, because of the approach that I'd been taking to media partnerships, it was about this win-win-win. It was a hybrid between branding and um, performance marketing and content marketing. And I think largely advertising had been done in silos, especially in digital advertising. You know, people that did media network sales um, and was very sort of like remnant inventory and just did performance marketing over here. And then you had people that sold spots and dots display um, campaigns. And then, you know, you had some partnerships people who would maybe... Um, collaborate if there had to be magazines and digital and TV all together. Um, whereas I'd been doing cross-platform, print, digital, everything. And I think that that was, you know, very fortunately a unique skill set that I could bring to the role. And the challenge that they had was finding someone that could innovate and drive new business for their four largest advertisers. So, I found myself as sort of like a, almost like a key account manager for Procter & Gamble, Volkswagen Audi Group, uh, Westpac and Foxtel, which is sort of a, a bank and a, um, a multi-channel um, subscription TV service. 
in Australia. So I had four key clients across four key industries and somehow they said they can't just be buying more digital display. Um, we need to drive some sort of connected strategy here. And th that's that's how I ended up in that role. Okay. Uh, and you, you did one particularly big campaign, I think, with Audi, right? With yeah. Audi TT? Yeah, there were, a couple, there were a couple of big ones. Um, the Audi TT one was fantastic because Audi um, hadn't spent with us for a really long time because we weren't premium enough um, as, a, as a digital publisher. They were always spending with, you know, the likes of, you know, um, the Telegraph in Australia, but, you know, it was the, the Australian and um, they wanted to go for really premium AB audiences and we had them but the issue was we had them in a really fragmented sense we didn't have them on um, the finance pages um, of our website we had them across i mean we had a joint venture with microsoft um, the channel nine properties and also with daily mail australia so we could find their target audience but they were in email and they were on some sport pages and they were sort of all across our network and so we went to them saying listen, we believe we can reach more of your target audience than anyone else. We can't reach them in one contextual environment. So we need to pair back this strategy and deliver to them a data-led immersive digital experience wherever they are and take them through the entire funnel of discovering that there's a new Audi TT, which I don't think there had been a relaunch for about 10 years. Um, and get them to understand what it feels like to, to drive this car and, and drive them to book a test drive. And it was all centered around actually a, a hero piece of creative. We used the Channel 9 um, production team, 9mm, who did a TVC quality digital uh, short. And it was, you were able to toggle around different features as the car kind of moved through the, the, the digital video. So as it kind of flashed the inside of the car, you could have a look at the sort of cockpit steering sure. and all the features of the dashboard. Um, and you could kind of, yeah, interact with this video. And what we did was timestamp different elements, find who was interacting and essentially qualify them down the funnel based on how much of the car that experienced and try and kind of bring them back into the features and all of the elements that we knew would shift their perception from the Audi TT being what was called a hairdresser's car right. to actually this new revamped, innovative um, and very cool race feature car that's just a bit small. Um, and we did phenomenally well. They exceeded their sales targets and it was you know pretty much a soulless campaign um, with, with Channel 9 at the time. So it's still something that they use and I, I loved it. It was stuff like that, whereas... We had to think outside the box, otherwise there was no way we were going to grow business with these key advertisers. And um, I kind of had free reign to give everything a go, which again, is very lucky. That's very cool. That's really interesting hearing about that in terms of interactive video, because I think that that's still something that's not really being done no. to the level it can be. And that's no. a really good example of how you can basically funnel people through depending on what their interests are so you're getting to click on different features of the car yeah and then depending on what's important to them you can then serve them up with more content other adverts whatever it is you want to do with them yeah exactly it's like you can really narrow down on people it's quite interesting that yeah yeah, yeah. so so you were so you're there you're with them you're with that group this is kind of joint ventures going on yeah um sort of what brought you from there to where you are today like how did you make that transition into sort of influencer world so part of the um part of the joint venture was was daily mail australia so i was part of the team that helped launch that in australia and within a couple of years it, it had become so successful as a, as a digital property that they sort of spun out of the, of the jv and, and set up their own commercial up op, um operations in sydney so i had to go head up the the sort of establishment of that digital team and what our strategy was like in market when we weren't part of a, a huge multi-channel um, company like NEC that had digital and print and long form video and short form video and data. You know, all of a sudden we were a standalone digital news property that in Australia, the Daily Mail brand is completely different because it, it was a new brand that just celebrated um, tab, you know, you know, it's kind of like really lighthearted tabloid type news and it wasn't um there was no newspaper it was just 
what we called seriously popular content. It was snackable. It was addictive. People spending time with it. People love the photos. And it was a very different proposition for an advertiser of, of, you know, why they would want to reach an audience there. And so we thought, well, we're going to double down on content here. You know, we're going to talk about how influential we were as um, an editorial team um, and how we could influence people's perceptions and decisions around a certain brand and their trust in a certain brand. And that aligned perfectly with the emergence of audiences on social media in thinking that, you know, they go to the mail for, you know, one type of review on a beauty product or what to wear to the races, but equally they go to their favorite fashion influences and beauty influences on, um, you know, what they recently bought from ASOS or whatever it might be. And they both had roles. And what we wanted to do was um, drive a, some continuity for brands throughout that entire ecosystem of leaning on people that you trust for advice when it matters. And so that's when we started working with Tribe. So I started working with Tribe when I was in Australia and then I moved to the Mail Online in the UK. Tribe then launched maybe six months after I'd moved here and got in touch naturally with you know whoever knew about them and whoever could help them get off the ground. And very fortunately, I was one of those people and within a couple of months ended up spearheading you know everything that we've been able to do here in the last couple of years it's been fab so you were actually their client i was so you were their client in australia and you were using the service and then it wasn't until you were back here in the uk and then kind of they reached out or you you basically got in touch you know you got connected with them yeah i remember the jules our founder kind of um had reached out and said look we're we're pitching um we've got a slot at ad news what well, was Advertising Week Europe, sorry. We're supposed to be presenting with the brand. Um, it's all been so short term and we just, we need someone to kind of come in and test the platform. And so a really good girlfriend of mine um, was working at Selfridges and I said, well, she'll, maybe she'll be able to test like a Mother's Day campaign because the timing was just right. You know, she had really small test budgets and they said, don't, you know, don't worry, that's, we'll match the budget like for like, we just want someone to kind of give it a, give it a go and also speak on stage with us. And it was just it was just luck. It was just luck that those two things kind of came together and Tribe was able to launch for Selfridges. And then I think when I went for the role, I was the only candidate that could very actively say I sold Tribe in two markets. I was probably one of the only people that had ever done that um, and said, you know, I'm an advocate for this company and I love what what they're doing in the space. And, you know, I want to continue being that evangelist. So um, I think that's what swung me the role in the end. And you haven't looked back ever since, presumably. No. <laughs> um, influencer marketing is a funny category. It's got a ton of mis- you know, perceptions about it. Um, someone told me a stat today that there's 741 influencer companies in the world, which is just ludicrous. Um, you know, because it's such a quickly growing category and people have different spins on it. They have different opinions on how it's done well, how it's, it could be done better. And there's just you know, a lot of mi- mismatched agendas and strategies that also is combined with a lot of brands trying to figure out what to do. And that's, it's a kind of, it's the natural recipe for disaster that you would see with any new channel. And it's the chaos that kind of always emerges as, as marketers and um, are testing new channels and testing and playing with things. But I imagine in the next couple of years, you know, we've definitely been firmly established as a core channel. And I think in the next couple of years, we'll start to see the dust settle a little bit on best practice, the right strategies, how you do influencer marketing. Yeah, how you actually manage it all. So, so just for anybody that's not familiar with the, the company yeah. and how the platform works, just explain to us how that actually works. So Tribe is an influencer marketplace. We're a self-serve um, marketplace that connects brands with everyday people to celebrate them through beautiful content. So we're not an agency in that if I'm a brand that wants to work with an influencer to, to be an advocate of my product, I don't sit there and pre-select them based on some sort of arbitrary criteria or even criteria that I think matches my brand objectives. What I do instead is craft a brief that speaks to those people, that speaks to the beauty gurus who only work with ethical and sustainable brands of which my brand is one. And I put the brief to them. And if they're willing to go out and buy the product, then they can craft the content and submit it back to the brand. So it's a content upfront model, which hasn't been replicated globally. 
which gives brands a huge amount of brand safety on one side. They see the content, they can vet the influencer, they see the caption, they avoid any PR crises that you know could be imaginable. I mean, we I remember when we launched two years ago in the UK, we used to go around with an example of like Scott Disick and Naomi Campbell and you know all these influencers that were copying and pasting captions that their PR manager had sent them, and it was always saying, "Can you write this at 4 p.m.?" Oh, I love this protein shake, you know, and it was like little things like that that can so quickly impact a category and also impact a brand's health. We just wanted to avoid, you know. So, so on the brand side, it's fantastic that they can they can manage all of that stuff up front and, and be well assured that there's you know full brand safety in in how they're working with influencers. And on the influencer side, it's great because at the end of the day, they're professional content creators. They're creating content all the time. They're crafting content all the time. If they're authentic with their audiences and they are real customers, then they've got no issue with going out, shooting a piece of content, owning the product. Like these are things that they're happy to do and happy to spend their money on if they're genuine about it. So what we've kind of created is this two-sided marketplace that self-polices for as much integrity in this category as we can pack in there. You know, it's not about dangling a carrot in front of people or gifting them, you know, these crazy experiences and products to get them to say something positive. We figured at the end of the day, there's a billion users on Instagram alone. You're going to find enough real brand advocates that are going to recommend your product to their followers without needing to beg, borrow and steal um, as a brand. So that's kind of the premise of it all. I think it's good to to finally bring the whole influencer marketing thing into a safe area where there can be transactions made. Yeah. Because like you say, I feel that um, quite what often happens is a brand will expect their product to be plugged by an influencer, but they're not willing to pay the amount that, you know, is is suitable for that. Yeah. Or vice versa, an influencer might be commanding fees that probably don't actually correlate. And it's quite hard to navigate that world of understanding what is something worth Exactly. So that's, you know, you're just leveling the playing field, aren't you? You're basically putting all the content creators there. They can pitch for it, say, I want this. This is my reach. Here's what I offer. It's like anything, isn't it? It's like anything. Saying it better than I could. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then that's it. And then you can choose which one you want and you feel like you're getting value for money and all that sort of thing. Exactly right. And I think, I mean, a lot of things were happening at the start. You know, when you think about influencer marketing, where it came from, it was, you know, YouTubers in their bedroom were kind of the the OG influencers, you know, and because they were they were getting these huge followers and, and any new platform like YouTube when it emerged or Instagram as it emerged, like they get behind their creators because their creators attract users to the platform and so they help them build their audiences. And once they reach some sort of... Um, sort of establish user base or audience size, they do less and less of that promotion of particular creators and they try to level out the playing field, which is why it's harder now to grow audiences on those established channels. But what was happening was you had these YouTubers with literally millions and millions of followers and some of them are fantastic and, you know, absolutely drive a response for brands. But it's exactly what you were saying, that the the pricing became... um, quite difficult because as the demand to work with these YouTubers increased, but the supply of the people who had that many followers wasn't going anywhere, naturally prices rise, you know, because they're in hot demand. Um, Lots of brands want to work with them. So of course they put their prices up. And so what we found was a lot of the reason for that was the collaboration. It was that it was taking too long for a brand to go to a, a creator who has millions of followers and say, I want to work with you. And then there's back and forth. There's probably at that point, a talent manager on board. The brand has their own PR team, their media agency, their PR agency, whoever it is. And you've got all these people trying to collaborate. And so we just wanted to create a very transparent, easy platform that allowed a brand to not just work with one influencer quickly, but if they'd saved all of that time, all of a sudden it opened them up to work with hundreds of influencers or what we prefer to say which is hundreds of their most influential customers and so if all of a sudden you could work with one creator and get one piece of content for a million reach and now you can work with a hundred creators to get the same reach 
what you're actually getting is far higher engagement because you're engaging in a lot more niche communities that have more of a one-to-one connection with each other. Plus, you now have 100 pieces of content to repurpose as a brand. And I don't know a single brand out there right now in the entire brand media advertising landscape that is not in shortage of content right now. And so what is being created is this other opportunity that you know we didn't even see coming, which is almost like a positive externality of the marketplace that is feeding um, customer generated content at speed and scale for brands. And that's very exciting. That's very, yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that because mm. You know, I was mentioning to you that we've just done a campaign with, with a brand um, where they also, we did obviously the video content and we worked with a digital marketing company to, to get that out there. But then they also worked, um, use, use your platform yeah. to then kind of get their product featured. And of course, from that, they got some cool material that they can now use and, and sort of circulate. And it's all part of the big campaign of what they're doing. So it kind of fits in. Yeah. And I think it all plays different roles. You know, if you only ever work with influencers and you only ever work with micro influencers, meaning you, you create thousands of pieces of content for every campaign. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining that your, your brand, so to speak, may get diluted. You know, it becomes about your product and your, your products um, being communicated through customer voices that's a different proposition it has a role it's not the only role but what it does to complement amazing like compelling storytelling that's done by um production agencies creative agencies media agencies that do that at scale but then supplement that with you know bringing the customer into the campaign as well is honestly for me that the most compelling marketing strategy that i'm seeing at the moment because I mean, for a number of reasons, brands just need to bring their customer into their business more, more, more. And it's not about influencers influencing others. It's about word of mouth advocacy at scale, which is something that we always wanted to do. We're just able to track now. And now I've got these assets that I can use that are going to help me with the personalization aspect and the sort of long tail aspect of my digital marketing campaign. One core asset is fantastic, but to really drive someone down the funnel, I may need something that I might compel them more if that dress is shot with someone in their skin tone or someone in their location or, you know, we're taken to the seasonality or their body shape. And if I can provide lots of creative variants and test those, then I'm more likely to drive conversion off the back of it because I'm delivering a, a personalized and relevant experience at the creative level. So I think it's just, a, it plays this really complementary role, both from communications, but also ad efficiencies um, that a lot of brands aren't tapping into yet. It's interesting you mentioned just then about, um, you know, word of mouth, basically. Mm. This is kind of um, the modern version of word of mouth. So where, you know, in the past, neighbors would, you know, talk over the fence about the latest product that they bought and why they liked it so much. Now you've got this kind of ability to scale that massively via social media, of course, but you know, that ultimately influencer marketing, that's what it's all about. Yeah. What do you think um, about sort of the, the negative connotations that sometimes is assigned to influencer marketing? Yeah. In regards to, for example, um, people, they have a responsibility when they're promoting a product or a, a dieting technique or a diet pill or mm. these sorts of things, you know, these kind of things that you get, get in the news. How do you navigate that side of things? That, I, I feel the utmost responsibility to navigate those things um, with, with clarity for both brands and influencers. And, and for me, the most exciting bit about being a two-sided marketplace is we have that responsibility to educate both sides equally. For me, the entire category will, will disappear if it lacks authenticity or impacts the, the, the trust and the social nature of the channel. So for me, the, the first thing is around like that being a real customer, being a real advocate um, and not feeling like, you know, you're sort of waiting for a brand to tap you on the shoulder and tell you you've been the chosen one only for you to realize it's not really a brand that you like, but hey, it's 60 quid. Um, You know, we want to make sure that we don't have those behaviors from our creators ever. And so a couple of things we do um, to combat that is we make sure we put more briefs in the platform every week than anyone else. 
And if you have choice of 50 different campaigns to work on, chances are you're not going to post 50 pieces of sponsored content in a week. Um, and we also make sure that you don't. And it means that you've got the ability to work with the brands that you do really love. Um, and our creators always tell us that, you know, because we give them the opportunity to, to opt in and choose the brands, but also enough opportunity, they never really feel like their integrity with their audience that, that people forget has taken them so long to build, even up to the 3000 number, that they don't want to lose 10 people because that post was not their tone of voice or not a brand that, that fit with, with the messaging and the kind of personality of, of that profile. So people switch off very easily. And I think the creators are almost, um, they're, they're incentivized to, to maintain the integrity that they have with their audience. Another thing we do is include things like influencer rating systems. So you've got everyday people that have probably never worked with a brand before and you know like the idea of it, but don't really get what brands are expecting. And so things like adhering to terms and conditions, um, you know, we also have an audience vital sign scan. So scanning audiences to make sure that they are genuine, that there's no bought engagement, bought followers, anything like that. All of those things impact their, their rating as, as an influencer. Anyone that we feel um, we find has bought followers or bought engagement get banned from the platform immediately. Um, and, you know, it's really, really important for us to, again, educate on the fact that that's not really going to support the category um, or support the sustainability of the category at all and, and therefore their future earnings. So it's kind of a being bad cop in, in the short term and versus other platforms of things, you know, we might be too harsh, but, you know, we really believe in, in, in driving the category forward. And then the last thing is about brands or um, I guess marketing communications that are a bit in the gray area. And, you know, I go sort of back and forth on the fence about this a lot because part of me would love um, the ability for really innovative brands that just don't have their, um, you know, haven't done all the clinical trials that get them above board, you know, even though they, they feel that their product works to be able to be approved. But there are just some areas we steer clear from, mm -hmm. you know, we, we've, we've largely, um, we, we don't, condone any images that show like before and afters we don't want to encourage any sort of negative behaviors within um like social media we don't um make any claims about medicine as well um so that's really important so we we, we quality check all of the campaigns that come into the platform to make sure that they adhere with all advertising regulation even if that regulation hasn't been applied to influencer marketing specifically. And it like, must be a bit of a gray area sometimes. I mean, I, I think obviously totally. you could say, this is a before and after, there's a diet pill where we promise that you're gonna lose this much weight. Okay, clear, right, we're not having that. Um, then there might be something else that's to do with sort of, you know, health or beauty or whatever, but there must be areas where you're going, hmm, the claim's not too dramatic, but we're not quite sure, you know, it must be quite a minefield to navigate those businesses. Well, it is, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, if a brand is not, if the brand is not being prescriptive and the creator has come up with that um, sort of proof point themselves, we're okay with that because a brand's not saying, please say that you take this every night and you've lost three kilos or something. They're not doing that. They're saying, we want you to talk about um, the benefits from you know, drinking kefir for a week. I don't know. And, um, and the creator comes up with a story that makes sense to them and makes sense to their audience. And at the end of the day, that's their own personal recommendation. And that's where, you know, we don't necessarily get in the way. We only get in the way at the quality checking part of the brief before it even goes to creators to make sure that no one's asking for, especially for false claims, not doing anything dangerous, not doing anything that goes outside the terms and conditions of, of yeah, broad advertising guidelines as well until we're proven otherwise. And we'd, we'd rather be safe than sorry, to be honest. Then there's enough, there's enough campaigns out there that they don't have to be in the gray area <laughs> for people to earn from. We're not, it's not, you know, like, oh God, the only people that do influence marketing is teeth whitening and vape brands. Um, it's not the case. You know, we work every day with Waitrose and Rimmel and, um, you know, incredible everyday British brands that people want to talk about that, um, that know what they're doing and kind of don't largely get into those areas, which is good. 
and good. I think it's all the more reason as well to have a platform where this stuff can be scrutinized because to be honest with you, if you're going, you're not having that uh, middle man, you can go straight to the influencer mm. and sort of cajole them into doing almost anything you want and vice versa, you know, it can be sort of... And we want our creators um, to feel like we've got a safe platform yeah. because at the end of the day, um, they get um, a wrap on the wrist as well, you know, and they get told that they didn't disclose something properly or, um, you know, you've seen so many Well, Fire Festival was the classic one, wasn't it? Exactly. Um, they become the poster child of um, being misinformed and misled. And they were largely misinformed and misled, which is why we always say, you know, go and buy the product yourself. You've got to feel comfortable with your recommendation and back it. Um, you're not being swindled into this. But... You know, that, that's why it, it's, it's just professionalism. This is the first sort of real direct customer channel that's been able to be scrutinized and measured in the way it has been at scale. Um, and for us, integrity and sustainability in the channel are the top of my priority list all the time because otherwise... I suppose it's also about influencers being protected so they don't get exploited by brands, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've seen, I mean... Our founder actually talked this week about um, he's he typically doesn't see any inauthentic influences unless they're being used by lazy journalists that are just bashing about a category for you know some really easy to PR clickbaity articles like Fire Festival. I mean, Fire Festival was its own you know um, chaotic mess, but. We've seen a couple of influencers kind of become poster childs for well, poster children, sorry, for things that largely they, they they didn't think they were doing wrong. You know, they didn't realize they were making um, going outside of advertising guidelines, for example, or they didn't realize that um, that what they found was a product that they really loved, but when they were making a specific claim about it, would actually endanger other people. And that's the the kind of natural problem you get in influence marketing which is you're working with everyday people you're not working with professionals and editorial teams and you know people that have been in this industry for for eras you're working with your real customers and what i love about being a, a two-sided marketplace is that we have the responsibility to both sides and that we have to protect our creators and we have to get them to a point where they know that whenever they respond to any try brief and they read the do's and don'ts that they are protected and that they are doing the right things. Um, and largely one of the tools that we've seen used in our platform a lot is um, the multi-login feature. Whereas we might have a brand trying to collaborate with influencers, but they will have their compliance team log in. Um, you know, like for instance, the Mars um, brand managers do that where they have their compliance team log in and actually make sure that none of the images show overconsumption of chocolate and that there are no children in the images and that there are no animals in the images. And so that Mars are protected from not encouraging um, the wrong behaviors or anything that would endanger consumers. And I think it's important to add that level of professionalism to what you're doing. And, you know, I hate for brands to learn the wrong way by taking advice from experts or agencies that might be telling them that they've got it under control. Um, that's why we, we, we try and kind of streamline and standardize as, as many of those protections as possible for both sides and knock on wood we haven't had a problem today <laughs> um but it has been because we've had to probably be a little bit stricter on on those things but you know our whole thing is there's plenty of fish in the sea we don't need to compromise on on our integrity as a marketplace or on our creators integrity um with their audiences because it's a growing category and there's yeah. there's there's loads of campaigns you don't need to be um saying or doing the wrong things by consumers it's amazing how there's a, there's a really um, vast breadth of knowledge about mm. influence marketing to the point where some people know nothing about it. Yep. Other people are in sort of advanced level five, you know, yeah. <laughs> they, they know how to kind of use it to the nth degree, like, yeah. like I'm sure you do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for some people, when I get talked to about this, they say, oh, well, we can't afford influencers because, you know, we're going to drop, have to drop minimum 50 grand on this. And, you know, Kim Kardashian costs a million pounds and, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. And they don't understand that actually it's not always about just getting someone with a huge following. It's yeah. about finding people within your specific category that have maybe a quite a small following, like a micro influencer. 
Yeah. Uh, and then in your niche, and then you can actually exploit that in quite a good way. What's, I mean, like, just give us the overview of, like, what is the market like out there at the moment? What, what is an influencer? How many people do you have to have to be an influencer? Well, our, um, our platform starts at 3,000 followers. So if you have 3,000 followers on either Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can freely submit to any brand brief. And we, we chose 3,000 as a sort of semi-arbitrary number, but also we thought even for one post, like you're, you're reaching a significant amount of people. And organic reach actually starts to drop off on Instagram specifically as your audience grows. Naturally, you're going to reach less and less people as your audience gets to the 80 million odd, as Kim Kardashian's is. And your engagement drops as well. Because if I comment on Kim Kardashian's post, she's not responding. Um, and by the time I've actually written it, probably 100,000 more comments have appeared or something and I just get lost. So naturally people just don't feel like they can be part of those communities. Whereas with my friends and family, it's far more interactive. It's back and forth and conversations are being had around moments that matter and brands' um, roles in those moments. You know, some of the best campaigns I've seen are um, brands like Waitrose going, okay, well, yes, we have a, a demographic and we, we need to reach people in the UK of, you know, um, in a certain socioeconomic group and um, who understand this about Waitrose and can physically get to one of our um, supermarkets or, are, you know, in the radius of where we deliver to. And of course that, you know, we have to reach those, um, those restrictions for, for who we're speaking to. But then if Waitrose just talked about being, um, you know, having these simply beautiful recipes and being, a, you know, a premium loved um, supermarket retailer in, in the UK. It's a very broad message. Whereas what we've been able to see is them talk about barbecue season and what you do if you're a vegan or you're catering to vegans. And what we, you know, because they've got this amazing new sort of vegan, um, these vegan sausages that you can roast and all these salad ideas. And then what about when you're cooking for a family or you're an urbanite and, you know, you don't have access to a barbecue or a garden? And, they've, you know, they've been able to cut down their communication strategy, which obviously ladders up into the being beautifully simple and this sort of aspirational supermarket brand. Well, that's what I think of them. Um, but speaking to each of the needs of their customer sets and breaking down their customer into more of these addressable segments. And that's the power of being able to work with micro-influencers. Yes, you can find someone with a lot of reach to just talk about how much they love Waitrose and that it's fresh and simple recipes. Fab. But being able to work with a vegan influencer, a vegan influencer with children, um, someone who um, has a background, a backyard, doesn't have a backyard, all of those things, all of a sudden it's far more relevant in terms of communication. And, you know, if I'm a vegan that doesn't have a backyard and someone's given me a recipe idea, then all of a sudden I can relate to that and I can see myself going and buying those um, those sausages and it makes sense for me. And that's why we see, you know, being able to as a brand be part of those conversations really shift the needle because you're essentially answering a customer need mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense um i have to ask is influencer marketing just about b2c can you use influencer marketing as a b2b company you can because it happens to me all the time um you know i work in a b2b world and i am also a consumer of normal consumer goods um as with most people Right? Yeah. Like that's my favorite thing about Instagram is that we're people. It's my whole lifestyle is there. My family, my friends, the people I've connected with through work. I, I talk about tribe all the time on my Instagram. I don't have a separate Lisa from tribe Instagram account. Like I'm just me. And I think there's most people are like that. Of course, there are small businesses on there that I also follow and interact with. I think most people, I think it's something like 80% of millennials follow a brand. And that, do that doesn't surprise me for the yeah. tons. Yeah. And I expect that when I do follow a brand that they don't, you know, absolutely flog me with advertising, but actually it's like helpful tutorials or recipes, all those kinds of things that I fit the natural um, user experience that I'm having on Instagram, but um, is far more... I guess, like an authentic way of communicating and a very different way of communicating. And I would say from a B2B perspective, you can do that too. Why not do behind the scenes from your brand? And why not hero the good work that you're doing? And why not interact with, 
you know, people that have come into your, or clients that you've worked with, we use you guys as an example, um, and showcase all the great work and showcase like that you've had someone come in today and that you, you know, and create a community around what you're doing because that's all we are really is a series of little communities that overlap and we are complex people that have a ton of different interests. And I think I'm not one thing. And we always say with, with influencers, like, some of them very much specialize in certain niches, but a lot of them are just, might just be, you know, a mum. Yeah. And of course she's into beauty and fashion and all of these things. And, and it's really difficult to categorize people when they explore so much of their lifestyle on social media. And so I would always say with B2B brands, like think about the people that you're talking to and not just your um, your business proposition. And for me, when I see and interact with, you know, small businesses that we like to collaborate with that are doing events and doing all these things. And I'm also naturally consuming Instagram more than any other channel anyway. So I don't know where these businesses would find me if not there. Then I think, fab, that's great. Um, that's where I'm getting my messaging now. And I'm grateful that they played a role instead of being very, you know, corporate on LinkedIn. It's not, it's not the only way, is it? No, that's fair enough. Yeah. The rise of influencer marketing, I mean, just the rise of influencers in general. Mm. It's been such a sort of bizarre phenomenon in a way. I think if you tried to explain it to, like if I tried to explain what influence is to my mum, mm. I don't think she'd, I just don't think I'd be able to explain what, why that person is who they are. Yeah. What do you think has been behind this trend? I think it's a decline in consumer trust is what's happened. You know, one thing was technology. All of a sudden we've got cameras, we've got audio equipment. Um, we were able to start freely posting media. So the democratization of media was the catalyst for all of this. That I can set up a camera in my bedroom and post things to YouTube and people will watch them has meant that all of a sudden we're not all gathered around a television at night together. We are consuming media in a really fragmented sense. And what was happening is people's voices were being heard and everything turned from being um, broadcast media that was kind of forced at me to this world of opt-in media where I get to choose who to follow and I get to choose who to unfollow as well. And I get to curate my feed and I get to pick what apps I download um, and where I spend my time. And you've got to earn people's trust if you're going to maintain their attention and you know I was, people always ask me how to grow their followers and I always say much more that you focus on retaining them um, because the people that you have if they're engaged and they're hearing what you have to say then what you have to say is something of value and that's where it's all come from you've got just multiple voices and this real um, broad spectrum of life experiences and people that you can choose to follow, whether they're around hobbies or around localities, or like I said, different communities that you're part of and mix them all together. And that's largely where it's come from. And the fact that, you know, you can attract people based on each of those things is where the influence holds, because you're, if you're holding someone's attention, you have influence. Um, and it's not so much about, well, they clicked to shop and therefore I have influence. For me, that's a bit tragic. You used to talk about a lot, I mean, we still talk about it, but you know, this phrase, the cult of celebrity, mm. which was how it would have been five, 10 years ago before social media. So, you know, you, you, you follow your favorite celebrity, you get obsessed about them, yeah. you know, everything they do, you, you, you're interested by them. Do you think we now are in the age of the cult of the influencer? I reckon we're in the age of the narcissist. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, the camera's <laughs> open facing yeah. you, don't they? People love it. Um, but I think that is it. Like, we're all getting so used to... I mean, think of FaceApp this week absolutely blew up. Where everyone just wants to see what they look like. It's, oh, share it. And those things go viral for a reason. And um, I just think it's this this amazing age where everyone not only has a voice and can share that voice, but also wants their voice to have a level of gravitas or importance or a place in the world. It's actually the thing that makes us all human and has always been the case, but we, we, we now have a platform for it. And there's a lot of good that comes with that. And then there's some bad as well. And I think Instagram removing the likes has been a really positive move because it shouldn't be about, well, 
oh my gosh, you're so lame. You only got 12 likes on that. (laughs) You know, it's not about that anymore. It's about you just being, you know, focused on your own thing and not on what anyone else is doing. And if people are communicating with you, you're still getting likes and comments, but you're not having to worry about comparing them with someone else who their context is completely different from yours. So I think Instagram is doing some really, really positive things to improve the behavior and and ultimately the same thing that we're doing, which is maintain the integrity of the social interactions within social media um, instead of making it about yeah, some, some sort of distracting metrics that, you know, they probably couldn't have predicted would go in that direction. What do you think's next for the world of influencers, influencer marketing? Got any question, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I do. I, I think, I mean, in the world of influence marketing from like a tactical level, I could talk for days about vertical video and, um, sort of customer generated content and how it's working in different advertising channels. Like most of the campaigns we do, the content is getting licensed. It's getting used in digital out of home. It's getting used in um, paid social campaigns and magazines. And the reason for that is because again, if most of our consumption, especially in you know our generations and um, sort of younger generations that marketers are looking to target, if most of the time is being spent on Instagram, then slowly we're getting used to seeing ephemeral content that is really high quality and you know really beautiful and of a certain, um, just a certain style. And now when I see that in, an, in a billboard ad or at a bus stop, I resonate with it because it feels natural. It feels native to me, it feels um, known. And so I think I think we're going to see more and more brands using customer generated content across their entire sort of branding ecosystem in partnership with some of the the hero storytelling that they're doing from an above the line perspective. I think personalization from an, an advertising targeting perspective will get better because people will be able to leverage, you know, all of their different customer sort of styles and voices in their advertising. But I think taking a step beyond all of that, Instagram's making some very obvious moves into into social commerce. And it's not gonna be about this influencer drives the, these many organic conversions for me. Facebook and Instagram are always going to be the ones that are driving the best performance marketing for a brand. They've got precision targeting, they've got the tools, they've got the, the scale f- to drive outcomes for brands. And they're never going to allow that to happen from a third party perspective. Influencers will play a massive role in driving essentially a multitude of digital shop fronts on Instagram. And that's what it will become. It's a, for me right now, it's a race between Instagram and Amazon on social commerce and, and sort of mobile commerce. And I think Instagram are gonna make some really quick gains because right now most searches for a product start on Amazon, but I would say most of those searches start on Amazon because someone's seen it on Instagram. and and. From all of the information we see, most people go to Instagram to be inspired, um, to, to look for product. And if they can kind of nail that last click attribution, I don't think they're always going to reduce the amount of clicks someone takes. So if I've seen a top on you, I'd rather click on you and be able to purchase it, then click through to that and the brand and then... And then go to Amazon exactly. and then whatever, yeah. So yeah. I imagine we're all just going to become yeah. these digital shop fronts, which means that you're sharing the cost of sale with a real customer, basically like a loyalty program. Facebook and Instagram, I'm sure, will get a part of that as well. And I think it'll fundamentally change the future of retail as we know it. And, and it's already happening in China um, with a few of their sort of social commerce platforms that are all peer-to-peer driven. Um, and I think we will look back thinking, I can't believe it was different. That's, that is interesting. I've not heard that one before. Oh, good. That's, that's good. We've heard it here first, yeah. everybody. <laughs> we've got it, we've got it, we've got it. <laughs> what would be your one piece of advice for brands if they're looking to get an edge in today's world? What's, what would be your one piece of advice? Well, I try not to give too much advice because I think advice only makes sense in, um, in your context, doesn't it? So try not to hang on to this too much. But... It's not gonna hurt, in my opinion, to bring your customer right into all of the strategies that we're doing. 
Right now, it is so competitive for any brand online. They're either getting, they're either having to fundamentally change how they're, you know, producing product. They're either having to fundamentally change their supply chain model to be more sustainable, more ethical, to align with customer values. They've got issues with trust. They've got issues with retail relationships, more people moving off the high street onto you know, the internet. And while all of that's happening, they're kind of making these monumental shifts sort of into the digital age. You've got people kind of disrupting them from all angles and competing uh, and sort of hacking their way through short-term um, tactics. And I think my advice would be you center yourself around the consumer so that you can move faster and trust a little bit more in the instant feedback that you're getting. You know, my, honestly, rarely brands use this tool, but um, we, do, we do sentiment analysis on every campaign where we can pull through all the comments, not just say people love the campaign or not and love your brand, but specifically what they're liking. You know, we did a campaign with, with Logitech around a speaker that they'd launched in a certain color and we stripped through the comments and went, these people really understood that um, that the speaker was waterproof, that it's portable, that it has battery life, that um, they really love the new color. And you can lean into all of these things and you can also go, okay, what's that audience also doing? What, what, are, what are they also into? You know, what's next? And for me, that is the only way to be competitive and we have the data in front of us. It's all about setting up organizationally to be centered around getting that feedback and bringing it straight into what you're doing from a marketing comms perspective, but also a product development perspective. Um, and I think the brands that are winning quickly are doing that very well. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I th I've heard this before from someone else where um, they were talking about the fact that if you have access to a large social media following, mm -hmm. that is your market research right there. You don't need to be doing endless sort of testing and learning and all this sort of thing. You can just reach out to them and just get answers straight away. And I think we're moving, as consumers, we're moving so quickly through... Um, through interest, through trends, um, through sort of what we're paying attention to, that there's no point doing your market research sort of years in advance of launching a campaign. We've got to move quickly and we've got to put less risk on things and, and test and play it as much as possible. But I see it happening. I see it happening as a transition very quickly and you know, things like brands bringing uh, media teams in-house to be a lot closer to, to customer data sets and a lot closer to that feedback when they're working through either content creation or distribution of advertising um, are some of those first steps that you're seeing. And it's going to be a better world for all of us as consumers, I'd say. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's a golden age. Are you up for playing a little game with me? Yes. Okay. So um, this game is called Two Truths, One Lie. Okay. Okay. Basically, I'm just going to read three statements to you. Okay. Three, fa it. three facts. One's a lie. And you have to see if you can work out which one's the lie. All right. Okay. Love it. So I'll read them. I'll read them all out first, and then you can guess. So um, the first statement is: People are five times more likely to be influenced by a non-celebrity blogger than a celebrity. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is: Ninety percent of all marketers find return on investment from influencer marketing comparable to or better than other marketing channels. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, the influencer marketing industry could be worth $10 billion, $10 billion mm. uh, by next year, by 2020. I'm tossing up between A and B because I think the sentiment's there, but you probably stung me on the actual stat. I'm going to go with 90% of marketers. You think that's the lie? I think that's the lie. I'm afraid to say that is actually true. Oh, fantastic. So that's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, 90% of marketers do find that return on investment um, from influencer marketing is comparable or better than other marketing channels. Or maybe I just wanted you to read that out twice. Oh. <laughs> and video marketing is, no. Um, no, actually, you, you did kind of almost get it because um, it the stat is it's, it's A. So people... I said people are five times more likely to buy to be influenced by a non-celebrity blogger than a celebrity. It's actually ten times more. Yeah, likely, I thought it would be higher. Which I think is amazing, actually. Yeah. Because um, of course celebrities are full of rubbish, aren't they? So that's you don't believe that. And they get given all the opportunities. Mouth. Whereas, like you know, everyday Sally from next door, she's yeah. not getting her you know door banged down by Rimmel. So if she actually likes that mascara, well, yeah. good on her. Yeah. I believe her. Yeah, and she's yeah, she's being truthful. Yeah, exactly. Great. 
Okay, well, Lisa, thank you very much for coming down. It's been great thank you chatting for to you. Me. I love finding out all about influencer marketing. And, I love talking um, about it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think Tribe's going to be one to watch. I think the whole influencer world is going to be one to watch. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, watch this space. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Okay, Thanks. cool. Bye. Thanks very much for tuning in to that episode of The Big Chat. If you enjoy the series, then please do subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch all videos from the interviews throughout this series. And I look forward to joining you again here on our next episode.